Welcome, and thanks for joining us for another sermon from True Vine Baptist Church. We are a Southern Baptist church dedicated to seeking the glory of God by proclaiming the gospel in all that we do. If you would like more information, please visit our website at true-vine-baptist.org. chapter 9, Romans chapter 9, give you a moment to turn there. I loved that line in that hymn, a well of joy is mine to drink. Beautiful. Well, Romans 9, we're going to read verses 1 through 13. Uh, the point that we are in is taken from verses 6 through 13 specifically. Um, you know, kind of just a bit of a reminder is, is as we're working through this, Romans 9 is one of the more complex sections of the Bible, um, even to uh, intellectually grasp, just to sort of see. How, how does the line of thinking fit together? It, it, it is deep. And then, um, so each truth as we consider it, it kind of keeps going to a new uh, level of depth that is there. Um, you know, one, one of the gifts of, of teaching is the ability to take complicated things and explain it in, in such a clear way that children can understand it. That's what I hope to be able to do here. Um, we'll pray for God's grace to happen, that there be clarity here. But let me start in verse one. Uh, we'll read verses one through five again for context and six through 13 is where our point comes from. And then we'll pray. So beginning in verse one, I'm telling the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience testifies with me in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing grief in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed, separated from Christ for the sake of my brethren, my kinsmen according to the flesh, who are Israelites, to whom belongs the adoption as sons and the glory and the covenants and the giving of the law and the temple service and the promises, whose are the fathers and from whom is the Christ according to the flesh, who is over all, God blessed forever. Amen. But it is not as though the word of God has failed. For they are not all Israel who are descended from Israel, nor are they all children because they are Abraham's descendants, but through Isaac, your descendants will be named. That is, it is not the children of the flesh who are children of God, but the children of the promise are regarded as descendants. For this is the word of promise. At this time, I will come and Sarah shall have a son. And not only this, but there was Rebecca also. When she had conceived twins by one man, our father Isaac, for though the twins were not yet born and had not done anything good or bad, so that God's purpose, according to his choice, would stand, not because of works, but because of him who calls, it was said to her, the older will serve the younger. Just as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Let's pray. Gracious Father, we come, we come and we bow ourselves down. And as we approach you, we, we acknowledge and confess there is nothing in us 
There is no worthiness in us. There is no righteousness in us. There is no inner goodness. There is no collection of good deeds we've done that we can come and say, because of this, we, we deserve to be right with you. We deserve eternal life. Lord, we are sinners who deserve hell. We deserve your wrath, but it is because of the grace you've given. Your work, your promises, your salvation that you created, this, this way to be right with you out of your grace that you sent your son and it's through his blood, his death, his resurrection, and then you chasing us down to uh, call us to yourself and apply this grace to us. This is our only access to you. It's not by the flesh, it's by your work, O oh God. And so Lord, we come and we say thanks and we rejoice in this. We're thankful that you've called us to be your people and, and now you're transforming us to make us holy. And God, I ask that you will help us to see your truths in this passage. We want to know you. We want to worship. We want to be transformed. We want to be conformed to the people you want us to be, this, this direction you're taking us. And so we pray that you will work through your word these methods that you made that confound human wisdom and you'll take your word and the strangeness of what we're doing here to, to bring about miracles that you'll transform us. So I pray for all the sons and daughters who are here, oh God, those, those who are in Christ. And I ask God, do your work of changing, transforming and growing and building and Lord, those who are in the room and they have not yet turned to trust in Christ to be saved, God, I pray that you will save someone in this room, save someone hearing this, save little ones back in the next room, learning your word. Oh God, please awaken by the miracle of the new birth. Please send us your spirit, shine light, feed us, help me and all that needs to happen. Lord, this is a, a, a complex section and I've got some trepidation about wanting, wanting to explain it in a way that's clear. So please aid me. Please bless me to be able to speak in a way that's clear and truthful and accurate. Oh God, please send your spirit to give understanding. So Lord, all of these things and more we pray and we ask in the name of Christ our Savior. Amen. There is some irony in the fact that here we are studying these chapters 9, 10, and 11, which are all about looking back at God's dealings with the nation of Israel, his plans, his promises of how he's worked with this group of people and all the questions that can come out of that, of what does this mean and how do we fit into that? There's irony in the fact that we as a church are studying through these things at a time where once again, the nation of Israel is under attack and there is war that is occurring. When you turn on your news and you see those rockets flying, you are seeing a continuation of things that stretch all the way back to the book of Genesis. Ishmael plays a part in you turning on the news at night and seeing what's happening there. Esau plays a part whenever you turn on that news. God told Abraham that his descendants 
would inherit that land of Canaan, that land of the promise. God told him, though, that it wouldn't happen yet because the sin of the people that inhabited the land at the Abraham's time had not yet sinned to the degree that it warranted the kind of judgment that it would later. He said the sin of the Amorite is not yet complete. Centuries later, God brought uh, Israel out of Egypt and then eventually brought them to the promised land. And starting in the book of Joshua, God sends them into the land with the instruction to go drive its inhabitants out. That they were to take possession of that land. What we see in the book of Joshua and then throughout the rest of the Old Testament is that Israel failed to complete the task they had been given. They halfway obeyed. And so what that has meant is that for the last 3,000 years, there has been unending conflict over this little bitty piece of ground. Isn't it, isn't it just kind of uncanny that this little bitty plot of ground, and there's been thousands of years of fighting over who gets this place. Why all that conflict? Why all that fighting? Did you know that the landmass of that, that, that place we call Israel is less than a quarter of the state of Indiana? The significance of that place is not based on its size. It's not based on its population. It is God's dealings with the people that he gave that land to. It's God's plans, God's purposes, God's promises for the nation of Israel. There, there's a um, symbolic vision that God gave the apostle John in the book of Revelation, in Revelation uh, chapter 12. And John sees this vision of a dragon representing Satan attacking and making war with a woman who represents Israel. And that vision ended with the, the statement being made that the dragon left to go make war with her children. You know, it, it is just uncanny as you look at history of just how over and over again, one people after another, one dictator after another, one king, one army, one nation after another has wanted to wipe that group of people off the face of the earth. And they've even almost verbatim quoted lines for that former enemies had spoken centuries before and they don't even know they're doing it. Isn't it uncanny that modern day Palestinians essentially quote Haman from the book of Esther and they don't even know they're doing it. They're quoting Pharaoh, quoting Hitler, quoting others who wanted to wipe Israel off the face of the earth. How, how do you explain these things? How do you explain the fact that oddly enough, even this very week, some of the politicians in our nation attended and spoke at a rally where the, the whole point of the rally, there was chanting and the whole point was wanting to wipe Israel off the face of the earth. There's always a group that hates that nation. And a lot of times they can't even tell you why. Can't even tell you why. They have no idea that the ruler of this age has influenced their thinking. If you want to understand this world, and definitely, if you want to understand the scriptures, you're going to have to have some biblical awareness of God's dealings with that nation. 
God's plans and promises to that group of people. He has chosen to bring about the plan of redemption by working in and through this group of people. And a bit of transition here, changing gears, leading into what we're going to talk about today. When we read about those dealings with Israel, those plans, those promises that God has uh, made to this group, we see that God has chosen to work in certain ways that those ways demonstrate and preach certain truths. God's chosen to work in ways with this group and in these certain ways it demonstrates it's an illustration or in some of the ways as we talked about in Sunday school, some of these ways there's an allegory. Uh, It truly happened, it's history, but it preaches gospel truths. So an example of that would be like Sodom and Gomorrah. When you read the account of Sodom and Gomorrah, God brought those events about in a certain way and they're recorded in the Bible in a particular way in order to preach gospel truths. A wicked city is in danger of the wrath of God. Before God sent his wrath, he sent a message of salvation. Those who believed God and fled from his wrath, those who trusted God were saved from his wrath. You see the connection there? There's gospel preaching in that. And a lot of times in the New Testament, what we see happening is that a passage of the New Testament will say, hey, think back to the Old Testament. Do you remember when God did this right here? Okay, God meant to teach deeper things in that. God meant to show some gospel truths in that. So for instance, in Romans 4 that we've already looked at, do you remember that section that told us, think back to Abraham. Abraham believed God and so he was justified. He was made right with God. He was saved. And then it asked the question, was Abraham justified before he got circumcised or after And the answer is before. And the text went on to say, God meant this to preach some truths that Abraham is the father of all who believe, both those who are circumcised, that would refer to Israel, but also those who have never been circumcised and trust in Jesus. That would be the Gentile nations of the earth. So the New Testament is just all the time doing this, showing us things from the Old Testament and showing there are deeper things that God was revealing. God has worked in history in a particular way to preach gospel truths. So if you get that a whole lot more, the Bible is going to make sense. And in this passage that we're looking at this morning, we see another way that God had worked in this people group. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, those patriarchs uh, of the nation of Israel, And there are some particular ways that God worked that are meant to demonstrate, to preach certain gospel truths. We've already seen that God's dealings with them preaches the truth that not all of the physical descendants of Abraham are the spiritual descendants of Abraham. So not all children of the flesh are the children of God. We've seen that distinction made. In this message, we're going to see the text take us even further. Kind of the way that I see it is there are three truths that are going to be revealed and and they take us really, there's three levels of depth. So we began last week to to look at some of this and we we went to one level that not all of the, those of the bloodline 
are the children of the promise. That's one level. This morning, we're going to see two more levels of depth that were brought to you and were shown these things. So we're in point number two, which is who true Israel is, the children of the promise. And there are three main truths in point number two. Does this get a little confusing? So verses one through 29 has four points. We're in point number two. Last week, we began the first subpoint. what I'm going to call letter A. There's three total, A, B, and C, if you're taking notes here. Letter A is, not all Israel is Israel. So that's where we ended last week. I'm going to do a little recap today to refresh us. Letter B, though, where we'll move to is two examples are given to poetically preach these things. And then the third subpoint, letter C, this is where we'll end, but we won't look at it entirely. That will be in coming weeks. But letter C is the great root issue of the matter is revealed. The root cause of salvation is God's choice. Not man's will, man's actions, man's decisions, man's strength, man's goodness. It is God's choice. So that's, that's where we're moving, A, B, and C. So because this is kind of complicated stuff, let me do like, like maybe four minutes of a recap of what we saw last week because we're building on it again. We're taking that truth and using it to go further. So here, here's kind of four minutes of a review here. Letter A, not all Israel is Israel. He states that truth in, in three different ways in the passage. So in verse six, he says, they are not all Israel who are descended from Israel. Okay, so what that means is they are not all the true Israel who physically come from the lineage of the nation of Israel according to the flesh. The second way it's stated is in verse seven. Nor are they all children who are Abraham's descendants. So they are not all children of God who are the physical descendants of Abraham. And then the third way he says it is in verse eight. It is not the children of the flesh who are children of God, but the children of the promise. They are the real children of God. Uh, to see Jesus talk about this a little bit, flip over to uh, John chapter 8 with me, if you will. By the way, what, what happens here in John 8, I've, I've, you know, we've mentioned this before, is, is a perfect example of really a lot of the ways that the New Testament is written and that it unfolds. We're going to look at five or six verses here that Jesus said, and Romans 9, 10, and 11 is three chapters further explaining five verses of what Jesus said. That's the way a lot of the New Testament goes. The apostles uh, by the spirit went further and explained more. So John eight, find verse 33. Jesus is speaking to a group of religious Jews and he has just said some things that they didn't like. Go figure. Verse 33, they, that's these Jews answered him, Jesus. We are Abraham's descendants and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? 
Now, throughout the entirety of the passage there, there's a lot more that Jesus teaches that we're not going to get into. So, for instance, Jesus gets into the fact that all, uh, all those born in Adam are slaves of sin. Okay, So he, he goes into some of those things there. But jump down to verse 37. Jesus replies to them and says, I know that you are Abraham's descendants, yet you seek to kill me because my word has no place in you. I speak the things which I have seen with my father. Therefore, you also do the things which you heard from your father. They answered and said to him, Abraham is our father. Jesus said to them, if you are Abraham's children, do the deeds of Abraham. But as it is, you are seeking to kill me. A man who has told you the truth, which I heard from God. This Abraham did not do. You are doing the deeds of your father. They said to him, we were not born of fornication. We have one father, God. Jesus said to them, if God were your father, you would love me. For I proceeded forth and have come from God. For I have not even come on my own initiative, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I'm saying? It is because you cannot hear my word. You are of your father, the devil, and you want to do the desires of your father. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. Whenever he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own nature, for he is a liar and the father of lies. So here's the gist of what Jesus says. They said to Jesus, you know, we're Abraham's descendants, once again claiming, you know, so we're right with God. We've got eternal life. We're good. We're fine. We're descendants of Abraham. And Jesus replies, I know that you're descendants of Abraham, but Abraham is not your father. See how that can be a little confusing? I know you're descendants of Abraham, but you're not. I know you're Israelites, but you're not Israelites. See how that can be a little confusing? It's about exactly the same kind of thing as when Jesus said, some of you they will kill, but not a hair of your head will perish. Remember that? Now we know what he means by that. Some of you they will physically put to death, but spiritually speaking, he was speaking to believers, you who have eternal life, you will not be harmed in the least. We have a same kind of interpretation uh, that is happening here um, in John 8 and then that is going on back in Romans uh, chapter 9. The same kind of framework is happening here. There is a physical group, but not all of that physical group is the spiritual group. So you might think of it, there is a large circle that is physical Israelites, the Jewish people according to the flesh. But within that big circle, there's a smaller circle. There's a subset, a smaller group of the ones who trust in God with saving faith. And what the text is saying is that it is the smaller group that is the true Israel. They are the children of the promise. So not everyone in the larger circle has eternal life and is right with God. It is those in that smaller circle who have trusted in him. It is the remnant, the subset of the whole population who are those who are right with God. In the same way that we mentioned, there's the visible church, big circle, everybody who calls themselves a Christian, the visible church. Not all of the visible church will be in heaven. There's a smaller group within that 
Those who have true saving faith in Christ, that is the invisible church. That is the true church, the church as God sees it. So there are two different ways that Israel is used. Israel according to the flesh and then the children of the promise. The smaller group, that's those who are right with God. So back in Romans, uh, flip to chapter 11 for a second. Chapter 11, look at verse one there. You know, because this discussion, it continues all the way through 9, 10 and 11. This is all going on. And in chapter 11 there, Paul is speaking. And so he's he's talking to this group and he's just explained all these things about how Israel, uh, physical Israel has largely rejected Jesus. And here's a natural question. Somebody might say, "Okay, then, well, Paul, does that mean that God has just thrown the nation of Israel away and he's done with them? So consider that question. Verse one, I say then, God has not rejected his people, has he? May it never be. For I too am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew, foreknew in that physical sense that they would be a nation that God had dealings with. Or do you not know what the scripture says in the passage about Elijah? How he pleads with God against Israel. So here's something Elijah prayed to God. Lord, they have killed your prophets. They have torn down your altars and I alone am left and they are seeking my life. But what is the divine response to him? So here's what God said to Elijah. I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. In the same way then, there has also come to be at the present time a remnant according to God's gracious choice. So what Paul was saying there is back then in Elijah's day, there was a small group that God kept faithful, those who truly trusted in him. In the same kind of way, God also has a remnant that within the larger circle of Israel, there is a smaller group who is the true Israel. So with that understanding, okay, now we're ready for this critical line of thinking that we talked about last week. Here it is. In the Old Testament scriptures, God promised that Israel will be saved. But here's the crucial question. Who is Israel? Who is the true Israel that's going to be saved? Answer, it is the children of the promise. The children of the promise, they are the true Israel. And so the scriptures will be fulfilled, which say all Israel will be saved. You're in chapter 11. Look at verse 26. Look at verse 26. So this here's coming towards the end of the discussion. Look what he shows. Verse 26. And so all Israel will be saved just as it is written. The deliverer will come from Zion. He will remove ungodliness from Jacob. This is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. So when the scripture said all Israel will be saved... What it is saying is that the true Israel, that's who will be saved. In the Old Testament, before Jesus was revealed, the name of Christ, it was those who trusted in the promises of God with true saving faith, like Abraham and Moses and David. But now that the Messiah has come, true faith, it is those who have trusted in the name of the Lord Jesus, that 
is the remnant. So you can't trust being born in a bloodline. It is those who are of faith. The word of God has not failed. There's a whole sermon in that sentence, by the way. The word of God has not failed. Some of those who were looking around at what was going on, these new Jewish Christians were saying, but I don't understand. God said Israel would be saved. And so Paul reveals God was doing deeper things. God was doing bigger things. And now the curtain is being pulled back. The mysteries that were hidden are now being revealed. The scripture is going to be fulfilled. Not a single dot of the eye will be broken from the word of God. Scripture cannot fail. His word is kept. All Israel will be saved. But here's what it means. It is the true Israel. So that was where we ended last weekend. Now we take that truth and we go further. So what happens next? Letter B, the next sub point, two examples are given to us. The two examples that we're going to see are first, Ishmael and Isaac, and then secondly, Jacob and Esau. Each one reveals some more about these things here. So first, first example, verse seven. Through Isaac, your descendants will be named. This verse comes from Genesis 21, 12. And God is the one who spoke these words to Abraham. Now here in just a little bit, I'm, I'm going to recap the story of Abraham. But for now, just know that God spoke these words. God had a son named Ishmael first. But God told Abraham, Ishmael is not the child of promise. Ishmael is not the child who will carry on the covenant promises. Ishmael's not the one who is going to lead to the nation. Oh, I'm going to bless Ishmael, God said. I'll do things for him, but he's not the one going to carry the covenant that I made with you. Isaac is the one through whom your descendants will be named. And so already, what, what do we see happening there? There's another illustration that it is not all of those born according to the flesh from the lineage of Abraham who are the children of the covenant, the children of the promise. Because Ishmael was not. God made a distinction. Isaac was the child of promise. So that's meant to illustrate. So that's one level. But then we're shown something that takes us even deeper. Look down to verse 9. For this is the word of promise. At this time I will come and Sarah shall have a son. That statement was also made by God and it was spoken in Genesis 18. Now, let me give a little parenthesis by the way moment here. By the way, Paul's assuming you know your Bible. Paul's assuming you're very familiar with the Old Testament. Paul's assuming that when he quotes verse seven there, through Isaac, your descendants will be named, that everybody's like, oh yeah, I remember that. And I remember how it all went down. So I just say that to, to know the New Testament assumes you know and you study hard your Old Testament scriptures, okay? If you don't know the Old Testament, if you're not familiar with it, you're gonna miss a lot of the New Testament. We'll recap here. Here's the recap of what went down. Abram, uh, that was his name at the beginning before God changed his name to Abraham. 
Abram, which his name ironically meant father, and Abraham means something like exalted father, was an idol-worshiping pagan, not a godly man. And God came to Abram at the age of 75 years old and told him that he was going to make a nation out of him. You remember Genesis 12, one through three, God gives a whole list of promises. God said, I'm going to bless you and I'm going to make a nation out of you. Abram had never had a son. His wife, Sarah, was barren. She was unable to have children. But at 75 years old and Sarah at 65 years old, God told him, not only will you have a son, but through that son, I'm going to make an entire nation out of your descendants. But a decade passed. Abraham is 75. Sarah is, excuse me, Abraham is 85. Sarah is 75 and still no child, still no child. And so Sarah then says to Abraham, now I'm going to paraphrase here a little bit, but it's for dramatic effect to kind of emphasize what I'm going to say. Sarah says to Abraham, we're going to have to help God out here. We're going to have to do something because, you know, we, we tried this whole thing for 10 years and I've not gotten pregnant. It's just not going to happen. So we need to do something to help God out here for this promise to unfold. How about you marry Hagar? and she can bear you a child. So Abraham did. He married Hagar in addition to Sarah, and Hagar got pregnant and bore to Abraham a son, son named Ishmael. So already just kind of think about Abraham and Sarah's mindset in this. God gave a promise that is the kind of thing that it's a, it's a stretch to believe this would be hard. And eventually they said, you know, God's just not going to be able to do this, but we can figure something out here. We can do this. We can make this happen. Abraham, if we get creative, we can find a way to, to make this happen ourselves. And so they acted according to the flesh. That phrase is incredibly important. They acted according to human wisdom according to human strength and human creativity instead of trusting in the power of God. That's always what false religion is doing, by the way. A false religion is all the time taking these, these things, and it's usually pertaining to salvation, but it stretches into other things. Other things like, how is Jesus building his church? Are we trusting in human methods, human creativity, human strength, or are we trusting in the power of God? But usually it's revolving around salvation. How do we commend ourselves? How do we get right with God? How do we have eternal life? False religion is all the time saying, we can figure this out. We can come up with something to do here. If you will do these works that I tell you to do, then you will make yourself right with God. If you participate in these seven sacraments, well, then you'll build up merit before God. Or the Baptist version that I have heard is, if you come to church every week, bring your Bible and tithe, you have eternal life. In other words, it's we can come up with a way to get to heaven. 
False religion is always approaching it from the flesh saying we can do this. Abraham thought that he could accomplish the promise of God by works of the flesh and Ishmael was born. But after some time, God came to Abraham and told him what's there in verse nine. At this time next year, I will come and Sarah shall have a son. And there's the emphasis on Sarah. The promises that God made to Abraham were not going to come through Abraham taking matters into his own hands, uh, saying, I'll figure out a way for this to happen. The nation that God promised to make would not come through Ishmael. It would come through another way. He said, you'll have a son and you will receive the promise and the nation will be continued, but it will not be through Ishmael. It's going to come through Sarah. And so, you know, what, what's the point being made? Well, we've already emphasized here the point of the distinction made between the children of the flesh and the children of the promise. But do you see that there's a deeper point beginning to be made here, revealed, about acting according to the flesh or trusting in the promise and the power and the work of God? How do the promises of God come according to the flesh or according to the power of God? When God came to Abraham, in Genesis 18 and said, verse nine, Romans nine, nine there, at this time I'll come and Sarah will have a son. At that time, Abraham was 99 and Sarah was 89. They had had Ishmael, Ishmael had grown up. They were about to be thinking of Ishmael as, as growing into a man now. And that's when God came and said, do you remember that promise I made 24 years ago? It's not fulfilled through Ishmael. Do, do you remember how all that conversation went down, by the way? It's actually kind of humorous. I, I chuckle a little bit when I read Genesis 18. God says that it's not going to be through Ishmael. And Abraham says, oh, that Ishmael might live before you. So in other words, how about we go with Ishmael? God says, it's not going to be Ishmael. And Abraham's like, uh, how about we go with Ishmael? God said, no, Sarah shall have a son. Do you remember where Sarah was as God was saying this? She's in the tent and overhears because these are angels. Three angels came to visit Abraham and they're having this conversation and Sarah overhears it in the tent. And when she hears that she will have a child, she laughs. You remember this? You remember when the angel asked, why did Sarah laugh? And Sarah's like, I didn't laugh. <laughs> don't, don't blame me. I didn't laugh. By the way, do, do you, when later it will happen, because uh, spoiler alert, it happens. Isaac is born. Do you remember what Isaac's name means in Hebrew? Laughter. That is good. That is good. Laughter. Sarah hears this and laughs. Abraham kind of says, oh, shall a son be born to me at a hundred years old? There's a reason why God waited until it was going to be a hundred exactly. Shall a son be born to me at triple digits? at a hundred years old and Sarah is 90. And then this part is added into the text as well. Sarah had not only been barren her entire life. It's also added now at 90, she's past the manner of women. What does that mean? She had gone through menopause. She was now at that point where it is impossible. It is impossible. Sarah cannot have a child. That's exactly who God wanted to use. 
That's exactly how God wanted to bring this about because who gets glorified, man or God? You're seeing insights into how God works. There's a reason why God works like this. There's a reason why God sent Gideon's army home and only kept a little band of 300 so that in the end, God would be glorified. There's a reason why Jesus builds his church not through technology, not through human creativity, but through methods that the world looks at and goes, that's stupid, that's old fashioned. Don't you know you need to get with the times here? You can't build the church by prayer and the preaching of the word and the ordinance. You gotta get with the times here. There's a reason why God works the way that he does. It is to glorify his name. It is to glorify his power so that man will not be exalted. And so what it was showing is that Paul is saying here, these things guys were meant to preach deeper things. There's, there's some allegory here. There's some poetic symbolism that's being preached here. God was using this as a way of showing. Salvation does not come in an Ishmael kind of way. Trying to take a miracle of God and reduce it down to something according to the flesh not only doesn't work, but it's an attempt to glorify man instead of God. The miracles of God, the promises of God, they come like Isaac, not like Ishmael. It's a miracle. It's an act that only God can do. The promise that Sarah would have a child was humanly impossible, something only God could accomplish. Abraham and Sarah with the whole Ishmael debacle, they acted according to the flesh. They acted according to the flesh and they got Ishmael. The power and the work of God produced Isaac. And Romans 9 is saying, this is how salvation works. It does not come according to the flesh. It comes according to the work and the power of God. So the principle is salvation does not come according to the flesh. It comes according to the power of God. Now from that statement right there, from that statement, it's not according to the flesh, it's according to the power of God, you could then launch into numerous discussions. So for instance, Galatians 4, Sunday School Crew, you heard this this morning. Galatians 4 takes that principle, Ishmael and Isaac, it's not according to the flesh, it's according to the promise, and it goes into the discussion of, does salvation come by works or by faith? And Galatians 4 uh, fleshes it more out. And in fact, just to show you that I'm not making this up, flip over to Galatians 4 with me. To show you I'm not making more out of the passage than what's actually there. Galatians 4, find verse 21. The whole point here in what's happening is there is this long discussion, several chapter discussion that is showing justification before God, being made right with God and receiving eternal life, the forgiveness of sins, all of that. It has always come by faith and not by works. So verse 21, look how he says, tell me you who want to be under law. So, so that's thinking that I can work my way to heaven. I can make myself right with God. I can be good enough or do good enough to be right with God. That's living under the law. 
Tell me you who want to be under law. Do you not listen to the law? The very law you claim to try to obey to be right with God? That very law tells you some things. Verse 22, for it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by the bondwoman, that's Hagar, and one by the free woman, that's Sarah. But the son by the bondwoman was born according to the flesh. There's that phrase again. And the son by the free woman through the promise. There's that phrase again. This is allegorically speaking. For these women are two covenants. One proceeding from Mount Sinai bearing children who are to be slaves. She is Hagar. Now this Hagar is Mount Sinai. Mount Sinai is where the law of Moses was given in Arabia and corresponds to present Jerusalem. Jerusalem on earth according to the flesh for she is in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem above is free. She is our mother for it is written. Rejoice, barren woman who does not bear. Break forth and shout, you who are not in labor. For more numerous are the children of the desolate than uh, of the one who has a husband. And you, brethren, like Isaac, are children of the promise. Now, uh, there's a lot happening in that passage, more than we'll talk about today. Pastor Ben's teaching through Sunday school. Come and hear him dissect that passage. The one part that I'm using to point out there is the children of Hagar versus the children of Sarah and this being used as a poetic way of preaching this distinction according to the flesh or according to the promise. Now, by the way, something else really important, though, happening in Galatians 4 is the book of Galatians was written to a church of Christians who were Gentiles by their birth. And what does he tell them? You are children of promise. That's the same title used in Romans 9, speaking of Israelites who are in Christ, children of the promise. So to spend just a second on this, God's promises do not come according to the flesh. They come according to the work and the grace of God. You can go a couple directions with that. Galatians 4 takes us in the direction of does salvation come by works or by faith? It comes by faith. Because faith is not working your way according to your flesh and your strength to make yourself right with God. By faith, you receive the miracle from heaven, the forgiveness of sins, counted as right with God. There is a miracle from heaven. So you can call salvation by works an Ishmael gospel. It's a counterfeit gospel it, it, it is a gospel, it's a false gospel that does not save, but it's always what false religion is doing. False religion is always taking this, this salvation of God, which is a, a promise that can only come by miracle and saying, I can come up with a way to make this happen. The modern version of it, you know, because biblical knowledge has deteriorated so much in our culture. The modern version of it is something like you just are so wonderful that of course you're going to be in heaven. There's not even a question to that. That's still belief in salvation by works. It's just, you're so adorable. You're so wonderful that God's going to let you into heaven. That's the false religion of salvation by works. It's an Ishmael gospel, a counterfeit gospel, a false gospel. The true gospel is that we receive a miracle from heaven, 
when we trust in Christ by faith. But that's not the only miracle you need. So now here's where Romans 9 takes this discussion. Takes this same illustration, Ishmael and Isaac. It doesn't come according to the flesh. It comes according to the promise of God. And it shows this. The miracle of receiving salvation from heaven when you trust in Christ by faith, that's not the only miracle you need. There is a miracle you need before that miracle. There is a miracle that you need even before faith. There's a miracle that precedes faith. See, if God sent Jesus to the earth to come and die for sins, theoretically, die on the cross, raise from the dead, to make salvation possible, to make it available, and then the message was just proclaimed to the world, anybody who wants to come and be saved, you can come trust in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. And then God stopped. And he didn't work this next miracle that we're going to mention no one in history would be saved. The next miracle that needs to happen, the one that even precedes faith, is the miracle of God sending His Spirit into the world to go after His elect and call them to Himself. The miracle of the new birth, which you do not do, God does. The miracle of God calling, God pursuing, God initiating. That God has chosen children of promise and there is a miracle of God sending his spirit to go get those children of promise and call them to himself so that they believe. Are you tracking with me? This is where Romans 9 then takes this discussion the children of the promise, the true people of God, are those chosen by God and then called to come to him. And these are the ones who receive the promise. Do you see how this is going just even deeper and deeper? So first level, what are we shown? It is not all of those who are of the bloodline who are the children of promise. It is those who have trusted by faith. The next level it is not according to the flesh. It's according to the work and the power of God. Third level, the children of the promise are those who are chosen by God. It is all of his grace, even from the very beginning. So this, it is so much according to God's grace that even those who believe it is a matter of God's gracious choice. So let's see that in the second example. So we're still in point two, sub point two, two examples given. And here's the second of those examples, Jacob and Esau. So look at verse 10. And not only this, but there was Rebekah also when she had conceived twins by one man, our father Isaac. For though the twins were not yet born and had not done anything good or bad, so that God's purpose according to his choice would stand, not because of works, but because of him who calls, it was said to her, the older will serve the younger, just as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. 
Now that last phrase there, Jacob I loved and Esau I hated, there's discussion we need to have. We do not have time for it today. I'm saving that for the weeks to come. But there's a test here of whether or not we'll submit to God. But notice what's said here. The second example of Jacob and Esau, it's even clearer and even bolder showing us the distinction between the children of the flesh and the children of God. And what it is showing at the deepest level is that all salvation is ultimately the result of God's gracious choice. You know, there are few truths that will test your willingness to submit to the word of God like this one right here. Sovereign election to salvation. There's a list of truths from the Bible that uh, evokes a response of resistance from the human heart, the fleshly prideful heart. But in that list, there's a, there's a smaller list that evokes some of the strongest resistance. The doctrine of election is in that list and might even be at the top of the list that humans naturally hate the most because it is showing some things that are a shocker to our ego. We like to think I'm the captain of my destiny. I'm the Lord of my fate. And what the Bible shows is the universe doesn't work like that. Humans make decisions. Humans work. Humans act. If you're going to be saved, you must do some things. You must decide, I'm going to follow Jesus. You must do that. You must engage. But what Romans 9 shows us is that there is something happening even deeper. There's a will beneath your will. There's activity that precedes your activity. There is the pursuit and the calling of God that then leads you to trust. You will be saved when you trust in Jesus to be saved. There's something that precedes even your faith. And that is the work of God. But think about how it's shown here. Abraham had Isaac and Isaac grew up and married Rebecca. Rebecca also had trouble getting pregnant. She prayed to God and God answered her prayers. She got pregnant with twins. When she was pregnant, the twins would fight with each other in the womb, kind of uncanny. She prayed and she asked God, what's going on? And God spoke and he said, two nations are in your womb and the old, older will serve the younger. The younger will be the child of promise. The younger is the one who will carry on the covenant promises. And so what Romans 9 is saying is that this is an example of divine election. This is an illustration of that. It was an instance of God making a choice from heaven. Now catch this. And the choice was not based on any human merit whatsoever. Jacob and Esau were in her belly. You notice the text says they hadn't done anything good or bad. Jacob was not the more godly baby in the womb. That's not what this is based on. Um, you, you notice the emphasis there in verse 10. From one man... Uh, they, they, were, they, were, they were conceived from one man, Father Isaac. That, that language there of one man, that's actually not the Greek word there. But what it is getting at is, someone could say of Ishmael and Isaac, 
Well, the reason why Ishmael wasn't the child of promise is because Hagar, his mother, was an Egyptian. And so that's why he wasn't the child of promise. Well, that's missing the point on a number of levels. Um, and, and to clarify that, Romans 9 says, okay, well, let's take Romans 9. Then let, let's take Jacob and Esau then. Jacob and Esau were both conceived from one moment, one occasion. So it wasn't two different mothers happening here. They were twins conceived at the same moment from the same father. God made a choice and it was not based on whether Jacob was nice, whether Esau was not nice, wasn't based on any human decision, merit, will, goodness, anything. It was completely based in what God decided to do, his choice. That's striking to our modern sentiments, but it ain't just modern man. It's striking to our flesh, which thinks of our, uh, our uh, worth and uh, us being Lord of our fate higher than what is actually reality. And so what's happening is these service types, who the children of the promise are, is based on the gracious choice of God. If you're going to write down a sentence to summarize this, it would be this. Who the children of promise are is based on the gracious choice of God. Look at verse 11 again. Though the twins were not yet born and had not done anything good or bad, so that. So in other words, here's why God did it like this. Jacob was going to be the child of promise. God could have caused Jacob to be born first. That's not hard for God. He, he rules the cosmos, causing one of the babies to be born before the other. That's not hard. God could have caused Jacob to be born first, and then it would have like more naturally made sense. God orchestrated it like this to preach the truth. It's based on his choice. You cannot argue with God. He is the one who decides this so that God's purpose, according to his choice, would stand not because of works, but because of him who calls. It was said to her, the older will serve the younger. And here's what Romans 9 is preaching. Salvation is the same. Salvation is the same. For you who are in Christ, you have trusted, you have believed to be saved. God chose you to be saved, not because of anything in you. There was nothing in you. you were, God chose this before the world was even made. He didn't look down through the tunnels of time to say, oh, that guy, man, he's really going to be something. I need him. Or he's worthy. No. In fact, the Bible will show that sometimes God saves really wicked souls in order to demonstrate the power of his grace. So before you go boasting, you might just want to think about that could have been you might be some of the point God makes from your life. God chose you based on nothing in you, based on his gracious choice. And that is meant to do something in us. It is meant to make us fall on our face and thank God. Thank God. You want him, but there's something that preceded your want. God came to you. God chose Jacob in order to show to the world the great determining factor in salvation is God's choice. God, man chooses, man works, man runs, but why does man choose and work and run? You choose what you choose based on your nature and 
who your spiritual father is. That is to say, who's the one directing and leading you in your life the most? Your nature and your father determines that. All of mankind is under the power of sin. We are born into this world with an inclination towards evil, rebellion, and selfishness. We reject the law of God, and naturally speaking, our default position is that Satan is our spiritual father. We walk in that way. But God has decided. He did not have to save a single one, but God decided that he would come to some, and he would grab them and change their nature and become their father. When your nature is changed and your spiritual fatherhood is changed, you will change. God comes in the miracle of the new birth. The new birth is the miracle from heaven of God going after his people and calling them to himself. Now, how that works, Romans 10 is going to do a lot of discussion on the human side of things because there's a lot to talk about. Somebody shared the gospel with you. People were probably praying for you. There might have been people weeping and fasting when they prayed for you to be saved. There was a human side of things. But Romans 9 is starting at the beginning. God was even leading people to pray and leading people to share the gospel with you. God was calling. And then in the supernatural, the invisible, the heavenly realm, God was doing things we cannot see. God was drawing you to himself. All of this then shows the glory of God. All of it shows the glory of God. All three of these patriarchs somehow demonstrate elements of the gospel. Abraham being chosen by God while he was an idol-worshiping, ungodly pagan shows that it's according to God's gracious choice. Isaac being chosen instead of Ishmael shows that God makes a distinction and it's not all who are descendants of the flesh. And Jacob and Esau shows that the root cause is God's gracious choice. What salvation by faith and predestination have in common is God's grace. God's grace. That's why we call that handful of doctrines that explain election, we call them the doctrines of grace. Because it is understanding that from start to finish, it is all God's work and God's wooing. This is why Ephesians 1 uh, says what it says, that God has worked all of these things to the praise of the glory of his grace. And so Christian, this is meant to help us. Number one, you understand the world better. You understand reality better when you understand why things are working how they do. And you will see God differently. If you're new to this, if this is your first time to uh, be introduced to this doctrine of God's sovereignty, tomorrow you're going to see God differently than you did today. He's big. He's glorious. He's sovereign. And it is going to evoke a kind of worship that can only come. There is a kind of worship that can only come when you know God saved you and there was no worth in me whatsoever. And it is meant to evoke worship. And if you have never trusted in Christ to be saved, God tells you to believe, trust Christ. Do not trust yourself. Do not have any thoughts that from your own strength, your own merit, 
your own goodness, your own religion, your own works, whatever, that you can find a way to get yourself right with God. You have no chance. Jesus died and rose from the grave in order to give the gift of forgiveness of sins and salvation and eternal life. You need to receive that in a miracle. Place your faith in Christ and that miracle will come from heaven. Believe on the Lord Jesus and you'll be saved. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we are amazed when we consider what you have done. The reality of this world. You have given this exceeding grace and, and, and we who are in Christ, we just rejoice and thank you with just great solemnity, O oh God. We worship you now, we'll worship you forever. Help us, O oh God, to live in light of these truths, to live a life of gratitude, to, to walk in fear and reverence and worship, knowing that you are the great sovereign God that you are. And Lord, I pray for any in here that have not yet trusted in Christ, please awaken them. Please, even right now, before I finish this sentence, please give the grace of awakening them in the new birth that they will trust in Christ. We love you, Lord. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening, and we hope you enjoyed this week's message. Tune in again next week as we continue through God's Word at True Vine Baptist Church. We also invite you to like our Facebook page, follow us on Twitter and Instagram at TrueVineIND, or visit our website at true-vine-baptist.org.